You're listening to The Real Enneagram Podcast, a spiritual quest brought to you by the Institute for Conscious Being. Welcome back to a podcast entitled The Real Enneagram. A spiritual quest. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Of course, we have the wonderful Dr. Joseph Howell and myself, Erica Jobes. But we have a really special guest, and and you'll be excited to know that we have Patrick O'Leary with us today. And Joe, I'm going to let you give the introduction first. Well, Patrick O'Leary is a mentor and my first Enneagram teacher. I was 36 years old when I first met him. Just a few years ago. Yeah, just a few years ago. And I traveled from Alabama to the Jesuit retreat house in Cleveland, Ohio, and spent time with Patrick and with his co-teacher, Maria Beezing. And for that time, learned the basics of the Enneagram. And that got me started on a lifelong journey into this wisdom, into the spirituality of it. So if it hadn't been for Patrick and his early guidance for me personally in understanding the basics of the Enneagram and the power of the Enneagram, I would never have benefited from it or taken it any further. He wrote the first book with Maria. He wrote the first book on the Enneagram. And I was told the other day someone was trying to get it online, and they are selling, because they're out of print, for $85 and $95 a piece. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that's quite a compliment to Patrick and his authorship and the historical significance of the book, because hundreds now have been written since his first Enneagram edition. The other thing is, Patrick, we asked him to come to the Institute for Conscious Being to be our guest speaker, keynote speaker, and to lead in some workshops. He and his wife, Pat, came, and that was last weekend. And that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about today, not only Patrick's take on the Enneagram and his thoughts about it, but his thoughts and experiences being with us at ICB in Birmingham, Alabama, with scores of people in person with masks who have been vaccinated, and also scores of people who saw him and us on Zoom. So we're just full of excitement and still having the afterglow from having him all the way, and Pat, all the way from three degrees in Cleveland, Ohio. So welcome, Pat, and how are you today? How is it up there in the three degrees? It was minus three, Erica, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, we're just fine. I'm, uh, winter weather is some of my favorite. I have no problems with cold and snow and, and we're doing fine. You know, Mm -hmm. the, 
it would appear that the pandemic is starting to recede and with any luck and some more vaccinations, I'm sure that uh, we may get into some area of normalcy by springtime. So that's my hope. Yeah. Well, we really thoroughly enjoyed having you at our training session. The session that we held last weekend was on the Heart Center of Intelligence. And I have to say that you and your wife really were full of heart and brought a presence with you that was just really, really touching. And many people commented on that. What a beautiful soul you are and also your wife. Well, thank you. And we thoroughly enjoyed being there. I think we uh, expressed that more than once, that just being able to have a live audience was a real excitement because, you know, we've all been restricted by COVID and having that many people, being able to talk to them. I think that discussions that we had between the sessions were probably as stimulating and informational and exciting just in the the interplay. And there were a couple of things, if you want me to mention, that stood out for us. So first of all, I did not realize when Joe invited me that so many of your participants are in ministry. And it was really informative to be able to talk to these people because while I spent 30 years as a Jesuit priest and Part of my formation was in a cluster of seminaries in Chicago where we had different denominations. It was fun to be able to talk to all these people and see how their theology influences their understanding of the Enneagram, how the Enneagram's being used in their ministry, and the fact that you had so many theological positions there among active ministers. And so that was very exciting. I mean, I just have never had that unique combination. The other thing was how thoroughly competent your participants were in the Enneagram. It is rare that anybody who's working with the Enneagram can be with people who have that level of saturation and understanding, and they've been doing things with it other than just receiving information, which is the usual. I think I was talking to some of the people who do consulting work, and our frustration always is something as valuable as the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or any of the other multiple typologies that are available are usually delivered to a group, say a business group. There's a lot of excitement at the time, but once the consultant leaves, that's the end of it, and there's no further growth. And a year later, people can't tell you what their Myers-Briggs type was or their Enneagram types or anything else. So the Institute was a way to see this continuation and what that does for people in long term. Well, Joe, what was it like having your mentor with you for the training process last weekend? Well, it was really awesome because I got not only the Patrick of the 1986 vintage, but I got all of the wisdom that he's collected since then Mm -hmm. and all of the stories and also Pat, his wife's take on the stories and the applications of the Enneagram. For example, 
at one point, Patrick, who's an avid backpacker, and Pat, too, and mountain climber, spoke about the Enneagram as being a compass and a map for our travels in life. And that was a wonderful image. And to have him put down that terrain in life has valleys and mountains, rivers and desolate areas and lush areas, and that if you have a compass and a map, you know what to avoid and where the oases and idyllic fields are. And to have him speaking that way in backpackers' terms, it was refreshing, it was a different take on it, and it made the Enneagram more literal and real. Interesting that you use my uh, analogy as literal and real, <laughs> because I don't know how many people would have that experience, but, you know, I'm glad the story's sold, let's say that, <laughs> and found willing ears, because that's my way of conveying things. Uh, mm-hmm. Something like the Enneagram can be awfully complex for people. It's just overwhelming sometimes. You know, it would be easier if we only had, let's say, four types or three types. But having nine types, people get just kind of overwhelmed with the numerical superiority. And they, and so trying to hold on to all these things is complicated for first-time learners. Later, of course, it becomes easier. And that's why in all my years of teaching to different kinds of groups, I always come back to the three centers and help people to try to find that center. You know, what's your primary energy? And then Mm -hmm. once you get that, then figure out three different ways to express that. And when you put them together, you end up with the Enneagram types. But Joe, I have to also comment, you remembered one part of that basic Enneagram workshop that was so significant to you. And it's really helps me to understand why people learn so well with our process. And that is, you talked about the fact that we numbered nine different locations and said, go find one that seems to fit you and then sit for a while and see whether or not you feel at home there. And if you don't go to another one, because that's the surest way to know this. I'm always amazed that other teachers of the Enneagram don't do that because ultimately you can only learn so much, it's called book knowledge on your first encounter. Mm -hmm. And you reach a, almost a, a craving. What am I? Who am I? Just put a number on me. Tell me what I am. And of course, that would defeat the whole thing. I mean, if the teacher labels you and you don't like what that type says, well, then it's the teacher's fault. Even if it's a fit and there are parts of it that don't kind of resonate with you, well, then you blame the teacher. And that's not the purpose of a typology. A typology is like any other system of trying to identify a wide range of things. Let's, let's just take plants. You know, uh, you, you start with some kind of typology. Does it have flat leaves or does it have needles? Are the flat leaves smooth on the outside or are they lobed? And if they're lobed, are they serrated? And, you know, it's just a kind of yes or no until you finally find where you are. Well, the same is 
true for these typologies. And I'm just glad you remember that because that always was the defining moment. It was then that you found what your type was with some assurance because those folks in that room were either speaking gibberish and you really did not feel comfortable there or they felt like your, you know, let's call them your psychological siblings. Right. Well, you know, Patrick, at all of our public introductory conferences, we have eight different, I mean, nine different locations with a table leader who is a trained faculty member. And that faculty member leads the discussion and people can visit one table after another. And Erica, you were once a participant at a conference and I told you it came from Patrick, didn't I? That you did. idea. You did. My first conference with the ICB, I actually thought I might be a three. And I guess it was that aggressive energy. And I went to the three table first. And uh, one of our faculty members, Terry Bailey, was the table leader. And she knew I was not a three, but she didn't say that. She didn't say, you're not a three. She said, well, let me ask you a couple of questions, you know, and she said, tell me, do you, do you really, you know, do you care about what people think about, you know, what you're doing and what you're thinking? I was like, no. <laughs> so she said, okay, well, we talked for a few minutes and she said, why don't you just go try the eight table? And so I went over to the eight table and of course, Bridget Galloway was the leader there. And that's where i after kind of talking through all the different issues, knew that I was definitely an eight. So I totally agree that, you know, talking through with somebody, all the nuances is very helpful because sometimes your behavior may look the same as another number, but your motivation is totally different. So it's about peeling back those layers and getting to the motivations and that sort of thing. So I've always thought that that was a really vital component of just those introductory conferences. And and Erica, that motivation is the key. I mean, Mm -hmm. the Enneagram is a typology that uncovers your motivation, not just your motivation for action, but how your thoughts are motivated, which is a perspective. And most typologies don't ask you that question. They ask you, what are your preferences? You know, if you've given these choices, which one would you go? And it's a whole different thing. The find your motivation because then you realize this thing answers a lot more questions than just simply your choices. Well, Patrick, I didn't have an opportunity to talk in depth with you at the conference because I had some family things and had to come in a little bit later than the rest of the faculty. But my question for you is I know that you've been working with Enneagram for a long time, as long as anybody or longer than anybody I know. What was it for you when you had your initial introduction to the Enneagram that made such an impact that you have spent a lifetime teaching it and working with it and that sort of thing? Well, I tried to explain that in the keynote during the conference, but to kind of summarize it, I was a young, relatively young student of theology, and I had studied psychology, philosophy, and I was a scientist by my initial training and my temperament. So I had a lot of information, 
what I understood from all the things I had learned was that there are some things you need to know about yourself that influence how well your, let's say, how deep your relationships will be. So I was looking for intimacy. I don't know that I could have called it that, but that was my quest. And when we sat with Bob Oaks for an entire year, six hours a week, as soon as we got into the Enneagram, I began to understand what was missing, why I couldn't make that next step. And what the Enneagram gave us was a clear understanding of motivation, much of which is clouded by your past experiences and your culture and all sorts of other things. And then I found a language, a vocabulary that clearly explained me to myself. That was the first thing. I had to be able to explain what was going on to myself. And then I could begin to share at a whole different level with the people that counted most of my life. And that's what we call intimacy. And it was at that point that something really important clicked. And I began to enjoy a whole different level of relationship. If I can just hearken back to the recent conference, when Josh is a three, and he asked me a question about feelings. And he, uh, like me, is a three. And I said, well, Josh, you know, sometimes I don't even know what the feeling is that I'm experiencing. So how can I even explain it to myself, let alone tell you about it? And he said, and I, you could just see his face brighten. And it was, he said, that's exactly the experience I've had. Well, that's something the Enneagram gives you because a three's problem, the three, six, and nine have a problem in their own center in that they're almost so saturated with that center that they are not aware of how it's acting. And they certainly don't express it the way people would expect them to. So threes at just hearkening to your own search tend to be assertive. They can be heartless sometimes, especially when they're in a leadership role. And so people don't think of them as feeling people, but it's exactly what is happening is the heartlessness comes from the fact that they're, you know, wrestling with these feelings and don't know how to express them correctly. So they come out in a like way that is not particularly good for relationships. So that's what drove me into the Enneagram and kept me there because of that being able to unravel the mystery for myself and others. Mm -hmm. So you spoke of intimacy. When you began to open up to your feelings and being able to make those connections, how was that for you? What was that experience like? Well, it's, it's like being reborn. You know, you find out there's a lot more to you, let's say depth, if we want, or breadth, it's both. There's a lot more to yourself than you even knew existed. And so when you are in relationship with another person, you have much more to share and you have a better way to communicate that it, it's like you learned a new language or a code and that enables other people to understand you better because the mystery of life is, you know, we are very lonely individuals. 
And nobody, nobody has ever had our experience. Nobody can fully understand who we are, no matter how close and intimate we are. They just can't because there is that separation that you're you and I'm me. And no matter how close we get, we really can't, you know, we, we can't become one the way we crave. I mean, that's the whole quest in light is to love deep enough to be united. And we don't have that ability. So we get as close as we can, and we sure get a lot better at the communication through something like the Enneagram. Have you found that the Enneagram is something that has been for you, that you've continued to deepen in your knowledge and understanding of it as the years have gone by? Or do you feel like you've kind of come to a place where you could pretty much, you have a full grasp and understanding? Uh, You mean... Uh, after 52 years of Enneagram, have I reached enlightenment and <laughs> <laughs> I'm beyond I'm beyond the pale of normalcy? No. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. A lot of people use the Enneagram, I'm trying to get the correct word. Let's say they use it as a kind of crude tool. And the Enneagram, while it is a tool, is much finer than that. And to learn how to use it properly, you have to keep trying. So you listen to somebody else's take on human personality. You try to envision things their way. You play around with, with the language. We were discussing that during the conference. It's, it's an evolving thing. I mean, when I go back and read the book that we wrote in 1984, I can't believe that I'm the same person that wrote that book. So we evolve in our understanding. We get a lot less crude in using it. And it's a growing enterprise because it's about human nature. And as a scientist, I can tell you, it's, it's like this pandemic. We started out this pandemic going on three years ago. And I couldn't remember anything from my biology training about viruses. And the reason was, when I finished my master's level biology, the viruses were not taught in microbiology except as a mention because we didn't know much about them because we could not see them until the electron microscope became so commonplace. Seeing the structure helped us to understand how they operated. Well, the Enneagram knowledge is similar. You know, if we go back to 1971 when I first learned it, we were pretty crude in our understanding of human personality. And we are so much more sophisticated now. We have moved light years beyond that. So if you don't keep growing with the system, it, it will then you know be of no use to you or to anybody else. Looking around, I mean, there seems to be a resurgence in interest because there's another generation. You know, those of us who learned it way back then were aging out. And there's a whole new generation, and they have a whole different way of looking at this. Have you found at all that the Enneagram has meant different things to you during different decades or different phases of your life? Yes, it has. When I first learned it, I was a little bit reluctant to use it overtly. There were a lot of reasons for that, one of which was our teacher, Bob Oaks, was very reticent to have this spread. He didn't even give us any paper. We had no notes, no textbook, nothing to use. It was just an oral transmission. 
that first group of the 15 of us, the Jesuits in Chicago, were the ones who started putting things in paper. And because we were scholars, that's what we do. You, you, you listen, you write it out, then you share it, you get feedback, you change it, you write it again, and so on. And so that was the early way of learning. It was very rote, and it was stereotypical. And nobody likes to be stereotyped. And frankly, when you use any typology, and you can see I'm trying to borrow from the scientific world, any kind of typology, you have to be careful about stereotypes because in nature, there are a wide range that still fall in the same group. And if I can use another analogy, there's a woodpecker that spends a lot of time on the ground getting insects, and it's called a flicker. And it's pretty ubiquitous in the United States. And when I studied ornithology, it was called the yellow-shafted flicker in the east and the red-shafted flicker in the west. Well, it turns out that yellow shafts or red shafts are not really a separate species because they can interbreed and they can produce offspring that in turn can reproduce, unlike the mule, which is a hybrid and then that's dead end. Well, the you know, the flickers intermingle, especially where the borders overlap around the Mississippi River. And so what we thought was two different species isn't anymore. You know, we had to change that because the evidence comes in and says, no, it's just the common flicker. They lost the shafts and you can find them in both color variations. So, you know, things like that in an absolute like science tell you that when you're dealing in not quite such an absolute world of typology of personality, you should not be so stereotypic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you find that you're learning about these days? What is the thing that you are working with or wrestling with now? For me, because I've spent so much of my life conveying not just the Enneagram, but all sorts of subjects. So I'm an innate teacher. I've been teaching all of my life in one form or another, whether it's consulting work with a corporation or whether it's counseling a merit badge with scouts, I'm still teaching. And so this is kind of an ongoing thing. What is the, the quickest way to make the Enneagram understandable to people so that they can use it? That's different than how do you convey the information. The information can be conveyed in a lot of ways, some of them very quick, but that doesn't make it usable to someone. So how do you accelerate the process of encountering yourself and recognizing that there are other people just like you who are not you? I mean, it's this difference between being, every person is unique, but when you sit down with other members of your type, you realize that you share so much that you might as well be related in some way, and you are psychologically, but you're still unique. And that leads into, by the way, another one of the instructional issues that we all have, and that is, okay, so you can say, Erica, that you're uh, an eight, and I can say that I'm a three, but we know that there are other members of our type who quite the same. So how do I account for the variation? So now we invent ways to say, you know, that 
you know, you know, we have a kind of spread here of eightness or threeness. And so how are we going to label that? And we come up with some pretty ingenious ways to do that. So given those two problems, that we are very similar, but we are very different, that's the challenge of trying to teach this in a short amount of time. Okay. Joe, what questions do you have? Well, I know our time is growing short for the podcast, but I'd like to know, this may be a bit egocentric, but I would really like to know what the highlight of your visit was to the Institute here in Birmingham. Honestly, it was meeting so many dedicated, knowledgeable people who are doing something to make not only their own lives, but other people's lives a whole lot better. And especially right now, all the divisions in our country, just being with you all, and you all were just wonderful. I started to adopt your language even. It, it was such a sense of welcome, such a community feeling, you know, that you have built there. That was really the highlight. Because, and I said this to you uh, more than once, you heard from me speaking in front of the groups, things I've never said in public before, simply because I didn't feel comfortable saying them. I wasn't sure how the group would receive them. And, you know, you tend to, to try to tailor your words to the people who are listening. That was the big thing, yeah. Because part of feeling welcome there was Charlie. The presence of a baby in any group is miraculous. Mm -hmm. It transforms people. You mm -hmm. just cannot be old fuddy-duddies when you got a baby around. Right, <laughs> right. Especially when the baby's as cute and sweet as Charlie. Well, a tribute to the parents, of course. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> but Erica, this is a question for you. Okay. If you're going to be watching Charlie, you might want to start, among other notes that you're taking of this, when does his personality type emerge for you? And yeah. how accurate is that as he grows and develops? Because that's a question that's still open-ended. I mean, we had an approximate, and we've talked about that, and it's a ways in coming, but you're right there to examine it. You have a whole lot more sophistication yeah. to be able to uh, pay attention to that. So while all these other things are coming out about Charlie, you know, see when you think his personality mm -hmm. emerges. We talk about that very thing all the time. So we are definitely keeping an eye on that. And and right now, really just enjoying his essence. You oh, know, yeah. That pure, sweet <laughs> little essence. And, you know, it's that, you know, looking into his eyes and he's just pure love, you know. So, and I'm sure we'll screw something up. You know, he'll put that ego on <laughs> soon enough. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Uh, no, no, you know, there's a kind of universal uh, antidote and band-aid. It's called love. Yeah. <laughs> and whatever, whatever mistakes you make, then you cover it over with that, and I'm sure they will heal. Yeah. Thank goodness yeah. for that. Well, we have so enjoyed having you with us today, and 
you know, we'd just like to adopt you and just be a part of our organization going forward. So you, we just, like you, we felt like you were family and that you just kind of fit in like you'd never not been with us. So it was just really wonderful having you. So to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at therealenneagram at gmail.com. You can also find us at theicb.org where you can look to see upcoming events, conferences, seminars, and trainings. You can also find out more information about the organization. And thank you again, Patrick O'Leary, for joining us, and also the wonderful Dr. Joseph Howell. Thank you, Erica. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next time. That wraps up another episode of The Real Enneagram, brought to you by the Institute for Conscious Being. If you're interested in furthering these conversations, please reach out to us through our Instagram at The Real Enneagram. Or if you're interested in our upcoming trainings or other resources, please visit our website, www.instituteforconsciousbeing.org. Thanks for listening.